Hi, welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. So Chantel, this episode is coming out on February 5th. Yes. February is apparently a month of love. It is. And seeing as it's a month of love, um, your two lovely hosts have decided to focus on a love-based story. It is a very romantic story. There is a rose. There is a wedding, sort of, almost. There is a funeral. It's like the four weddings and a funeral of the short story world. It's more like three funerals and a maybe wedding. (laughs) So today we will be looking at William Faulkner's A Rose for Emily, which is a Southern Gothic short story. How romantic already. The Southern Gothic is a genre of literature that focuses on a lot of uncanniness and unsettling and happens as you may or may not have guessed by now. The South. No way. So it has a lot of grotesque characters and a lot of alienation and transgressive thoughts. Um, And that's what we're going to be talking today about Rose for Emily. So because it's a very short story, (laughs) I will refrain from giving you a line-by-line analysis of plot reruns, and I will try to keep it as short as possible. It's about 20 minutes if you go on YouTube and you find an audiobook for it. The one thing I will warn you about is that in some versions of the story, it does have the n-word. As I have not even said what the n-word is, I will clearly not be using that version. And it's just a little content warning for people. So, A Rose for Emily opens on a funeral of, get this, Emily, and it kind of goes back reminiscing, I guess, on her life, although I don't know if reminiscing is the word we want to use. The speaker talks about how Emily used to live with her father, and her father died, and it took a really hard toll on Emily. You know, she became a woman who was living on her own in a big house. Her father didn't allow her to marry, and by that point she was 30 years old, so she was kind of a spinstress, and that's not really great. So, She had a lot of issues with her dad dying and with men or lack thereof in her life. Um, A lot of people thought she was never going to marry. And then all of a sudden she meets this guy from the North. Oh no, never trust people from the North. (laughs) His name is is Homer. Um, And Homer apparently uh, remarked that he liked men and that he wasn't a marrying man. Um, But Emily was dead set on this man, and Emily seemed really happy. Uh, But he, for some reason, was never seen again. He went into her house one day, and then people didn't see him again and thought he had run off because Emily is seen as being kind of strange. Emily goes to a druggist, and she asks him for poison. He's like, okay, well, what are you going to use it for? And she's like, uh... No comment. (laughs) And then she gets it, and on the box it's written that it's for rats. They're like, we're not going to get involved in this. No. (laughs) This is not an us problem. She has weird scents emanating from her house, and they think it's from rats that the black servant, Reed almost slave that Miss Emily has killing things around the house. So in the dead of night, people go and sprinkle some lime around the house to try and break up the smells. Miss Emily never pays taxes because she has this agreement. Well, her dad had this agreement with the former mayor and she's basically become like the old kook that everybody just is like, she's not paying her taxes. We're not even going to try at this point. We're just going to let her be. She's like, go talk to the mayor guy. And the mayor guy's been dead for like 10 years. Yeah, she's a little out of it. 
So eventually we get a description of Emily. At the beginning, she's very like young and sprite. You know, she's not terrible looking and she's in with society and she teaches people how to paint China and stuff. And at the end, she becomes this very grotesque woman. Her eyes are described as being pits set into like flesh. This would be a really good Tim Burton movie, like a Tim Burton claymation movie. Her yeah. old self would be such a good Tim Burton claymation character. I mean, isn't that just Coraline? Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So that's that's how she just she's described by our, our lovely narrator. But eventually, Miss Emily dies of sickness. We go back to her funeral that we were at at the beginning. Yes. So they go to her house and the black man... I believe his name is Toby. Is that possible? Oh, it's Toby, but with an E. Yes, Toby, with the E. No Y. Spelt like to be or not to be. (laughs) Yes. So Toby leaves the house and, you know, moves on with his life, never to be seen again. So these people go into this house and it's full of dust. And then eventually they go upstairs into a room that hasn't been opened in the last like 50 years or so, you know? Yeah. And they open this door and there is a dank smell coming out of it. Uh, They're like, oh, this must be the rat room. (laughs) This must be the rat room. So this room is dressed to the nines as a bridal suite, so to speak. There's some delicate array of crystal and a man's toilet things. There's a collar and a tie as if they had just been removed. There's a man lying in the bed. The man was no longer alive. The man is is, uh, Homer, Emily's lover, I guess, who has been there presumably since the last time he was seen. Since he suspiciously walked into her house and never walked out again. And never left again. I'll read you the last two paragraphs of this story because I think they are some of the best ones. So, for a long while, we just stood there, looking down at the profound and fleshless grin. The body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace, but now the long sleep that outlasts love, that conquers even the grimace of love, had cuckled him. What was left of him, rotted beneath what was left of the nightshirt, had become inextricable from the bed in which he lay, and upon the pillow beside him lay that even coating of the patient and binding dust. Then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from it, and leaning forward, that faint and invisible dust dry and acrid in the nostril, we saw a long strand of iron gray hair. That hair being Emily's hair, (laughs) y'all. And they say romance is dead. I've been waiting the entire summary to tell that joke. Fair. I'm quite excited about it. And I definitely think that if there were a movie adaptation with Tim Burton-style claymation figures, that should be the tagline. And I think I'm going to make a movie poster. Are you also going to sell that to people? Yeah, that's my pitch. Okay, good. Um, So that's the lowdown on the Rose family. So it's not told in a linear fashion, um, which is kind of why the summary was not linear either. So the reason we we picked this um, is because we both read it in school, obviously, but also because we thought it was a short story that like stayed with the both of us and we really, really enjoyed it. I think Chantal and I have a weird love for gothic narratives. I think we do. I am quite drawn to them. I think there's something about the grotesque that just reels you in. It's a safe way to explore kind of uncomfortable topics and fear 
and bad feelings. It really is. Because you have to understand that Emily was stopped by her dad from having like a normal life. Um, And then he died and she was kind of like, oh, what do I do now? Like when he died, they had to go to her house and be like, okay, you need to give us the body. And she was like, no. And like they had to like force her to give him the body because she just couldn't let it go. She was always kind of delusional. She was like, my dad's not dead. Yeah. So I think that Emily might have not wanted to be left alone. And she figured out a way not to be alone by killing Homer. In a way, I guess. I mean, she always had Toby, but he wasn't, he wasn't there for her, was he? He was kind of just there because, well, he needed to be. Yeah, so I think it's important to talk about the context of when this story was written. It's set in a post-Civil War South, and the slaves had been freed, technically, legally, but the systems that were still in place bound Black people who had been in slavery, mostly to the same economic system, where they had to be servants for the white people just to survive. Yeah. So it was like, basically slavery by another name. Yes. It's kind of got like a little bit Gone with the Wind vibes to me. It does. It was written in the same period, actually. Uh, That makes sense. Yeah. Because um, Homer is from the north and he's coming in and his deal is he's going to like pave a road and he's going to make it more like the north because they had like this dirt road and it was a very southern classic town and everyone's like "Ooh, i don't know if we want to industrialize i don't know if we want things to change you know yeah and he's very popular but he's also kind of like a little bit of a villain because he's getting rid of the way of life and that's a line that never ever sat well with me and gone with the wind is that the way of life is now gone with the wind and they are thinking the way of life is like there's dirt roads and you sit on the porch and you're nice to your neighbors but actually the way of life is just slavery yeah you own slaves yeah and you profit off the suffering of other human beings yeah whereas like the north had like industrialized itself the south hadn't so he's bringing like industry and like proper rational thinking that's not freaking racist to the south and the south's just like meh we don't need this you know we're fine yeah because they were they were profiting off agriculture they were profiting off plantations yeah and i mean he he's kind of off the beaten path too Like, not just because he's a northerner and not just because he wants to come industrialize the town, but he's also said to have liked men and not to have liked women. But Chantel. Yes? Did you have a queer reading for this? It's really off-brand for me, but I actually didn't when I originally read this. But now that you have reminded me he likes men, (laughs) um, I'm thinking maybe he's gay, Amy. Um, I think that, that would check out with the whole... Emily not being okay with him leaving thing. Yeah. She wanted to get married. She wanted to settle down. And he was saying, I'm not a marrying man, which I mean, if he's gay, he wouldn't be because he couldn't marry the person he wanted to marry. Yeah. So all of these, um, like the inclusion of the N-word, the inclusion of Toby and whatever else is going on in there is also kind of reflective of Faulkner himself in the sense that he didn't believe that unsegregation should happen overnight. He thought it should happen progressively, which I think is pretty freaking shitty. Unsegregation? Yeah. Oh, un- like integration? <laughs> yeah, like... They were like, man, there's all these people in the pit of despair. Maybe we should let them all go. And then he was like, nah, let's not. That's not how 
Fezzik and Inigo stormed the castle. Like, he was actually named after his great-grandfather, who was like a confederate soldier, hero person. Can you be a confederate hero? I think that's an oxymoron. You can be a confederate villain. Yeah, but he was like a higher-up. He did question a lot of race issues in his other works. Right. Did he do it well? No. Uh, did he do it fully? No. Do we excuse his thoughts and actions? Absolutely not, but here we are. I don't know how William Faulkner could complain and argue that there should have been a slower integration because literally the intergenerational passage of wealth and like the intergenerational trauma of slavery is happening to this day. Yeah. So I don't know how it could be any slower than that, Willie. Yeah. I don't know what his like deal was. His Wikipedia article isn't like... Yeah, he was racist, or no, he wasn't racist, which I found really hard because I had to go digging for more things. Um, I had to actually read about him, and that was rough for me because it's my research week. (laughs) He was just kind of like, well, I guess this is how it is now. You know? Like, he wasn't going to go out into the streets holding a sign saying, we should be better. He would probably go out in the street holding a sign saying, we should be worse. Yeah. He wasn't like a great time. I also think it's important to look at how the townspeople reacted to Emily. Mm -hmm. Because she was seen as kind of like a town burden. Because she was unwilling to get with the times. Yes, she was very set in her ways. The ways being those that were like entrenched by her dad. As she got older and she didn't pay her taxes and she like had this dead husband in her house. Like that's something that kind of like festered within her and it showed itself outwardly as well yeah she's kind of like the opposite of nostalgia yeah because nostalgia is like a wistful remembrance of a time that never really existed and then she is kind of like it's in the present she is the past that did exist and it's coming to haunt the present i don't know if i have anything to add to that that was a good good end to that thought thank you I had it in my own brain. Yeah, I think she's very set in her visions of the idyllic pastoral and agrarian South. But like, she's she's also a victim. Like, I think the reason that we have a rose for Emily is that she's a victim of the setup that she was given. Like if her father hadn't been so patriarchal, she might have not been so kooky, if you know what I mean. Right. Like if she had been allowed to like go out and see people like a normal girl and like, you know, date and not have to be a single spinstress forever if she hadn't been shackled by the patriarchy she might have not had to like poison someone to spend the rest of her life with her you know yes she she wasn't socialized well she's like one of those kids that grow up in the wilderness and are raised by wolves and then they try to reintegrate into society she's kind of like that yeah I was going to say she's like a a puppy who you bring home and then only ever has any contact with you in your house. And then you bring it to like the dog park and it freaks the fuck out. Yes. But your analogy is probably better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think she's a ghost of the patriarchy. She's a ghost of the times before her. And she has an actual ghost in her house, you know? Yeah, she's a very sad pathetic character in the sense that we're supposed to feel pathos for her like we're supposed to feel bad for her but at the same time she's also complicit in a racist system yes yes 100 and i think that's where like when i first read this i was like oh my gosh i love this sword it's so much fun i love that it's just like oh she has a dead guy next to her like that's okay <laughs> fine cool you know year one amy was like this is such a cool concept but as i've like i've grown up <laughs> 
and face the reality of like living alone, her realities feel sad, like less grotesque, more sad. And like before I was like, oh, this is so weird. And now I'm like, this is unsettling. Yeah, I can see that. I kind of thought like when I originally read this, I thought that he was cheating on her. Like, I don't think it says he's cheating on her, but I got the impression that he was. And that's why she killed him. And then when I read that it was by a man, William Faulkner, I was quite surprised because it, to me, feels like a precursor to these other stories about women trying to get revenge on men who are cheating on them. Like, you know, the First Wives Club. Before He Cheats by Carrie Underwood. That's the vibe I was getting <laughs> from this story. Yeah. Which is like a fair vibe to have considering the freaking cheater that Faulkner was. <laughs> but like that's not like the reality of it. Like it's just that like he couldn't love her in the way that she wanted to be loved. But he was nice enough to talk to her and she didn't want to lose that. And that's super sad. She had nice guy syndrome. Yes. She was like oh, he's my friend and he's paying attention to me and I'm so nice to him, so he should marry me. Yeah, she she took the first guy who said hi to her and was like, that's good enough for me. All right, put a ring on it, man. Lock this shit down. The way that it was like written and like played out is kind of fun. Yeah. Because you only get bits and pieces of her life. Like you get snippets, you get slivers um, into like these pictures of her life, you know, her buying arsenic, a hilarious scene. <laughs> her like looking at these guys who are like, you need to pay her taxes. And she's like, fuck that, I'm not paying my taxes. Because <laughs> I don't have taxes. Because I have a range. Like that's funny. They're they're comical in nature, but as things progress, they get creepier. Yes. The way it's shown to us gives us a lot more sympathy for Emily than we would have had had it just been laid out chronologically, you know? So, like, let's say we don't start at the funeral. We start when she's a kid and, like, her dad and whatever. And then we go through things. She meets Homer. She poisons him. She doesn't pay her taxes, blah, blah, blah. And then we get to the funeral. Yeah. We can't, We would kind of be like, she got what she deserved, you know? Yeah. But that's not how we, how we feel about it. I think that tells us a lot about how much of good storytelling is interesting writing. And I saw a lot of, so I, I read, listened to the audiobook version of it. And a lot of like the teenagers who were reading it were like, this is a stupid story. Why are you reading the comments section of the audiobook though? Because I can't. If the choice is between reading an interesting gothic story and reading something else, I think I would rather read the interesting gothic story. <laughs> yeah, like... I'm like, don't you feel, like, kind of weird about it? Don't you think it's a cool twist at the end? No? So that's the youth of today, which I'm not really impressed with. Oh, the youth. And then a bunch of, like, you know, the comments were like, why did he use the N-word? And I'm like, because this was written in the 30s. Was, was, is it, was it good at that point? No, he shouldn't have done it. But did he do it anyways? Yeah, 100%. It's kind of disingenuous to me to erase the racism from racist works of literature yeah like if the author was racist explain why and why that's wrong but don't pretend the author wasn't racist i think it's walt disney who did this with like one of their cartoons or something they put a warning in front of it being like this was a product of its time blah 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 um, this was a product of its time, which doesn't make it right and yeah. doesn't make the person who made it right. No. But you also shouldn't repeat it. Learn from the mistakes of the past. Absolutely. 
Also, he won the Nobel Prize. Faulkner won the Nobel Prize. For why? His powerful and artistically unique contribution to the modern American novel. I guess. I mean, like when I think about really important English that American authors, I do think about Faulkner. So I guess that's fair. What else did Faulkner write? Oh, he wrote As I Lay Dying, which is a Southern Gothic novel. Oh, I've heard of that. Yep. He wrote The Hamlet. The Hamlet. Which is about like Hamlet as in small town. Yeah. So that's fun. Then he also has a bunch of short stories. Like he was proficient in short stories. Prolific? Prolific. <laughs> um, which one have we also read? Rose for Emily. Yeah, Rose for Emily was published in 1930 in a magazine of all things. Was it only published in 1930? Yeah. Wow. Is it set in 1930? Oh, I don't think so. It's set in a false city, so that doesn't help us, does it? It does not. It doesn't say when it's set, but after after the Civil War, for sure. Yeah. It was actually adapted in a PBS adaptation, so that's fun. Really? Yeah. Did they use my tagline? No. That's a shame. I know. They missed out. I know. Uh, He was also a screenwriter. It's so weird to me. Like, I know that film existed in the 30s, and I know that this story was written in the 30s, but I can't put together in my head that this story would have been written at the same time that, like, films were being made. Writers and filmmakers are so separate in my mind. Like, classic writers. Yeah, it's like when you think about the fact that MLK and um, Anne Frank... Like, they were born at the same time. Yeah, that's so bizarre to me. And, like, that all happened at the same time as movies. And then, like, when we're looking at American literature and we're looking at British literature, like, I also can't understand how the two could be at the same time. I'm like, okay, so there was... Picasso and Einstein. There was British literature, and then later there was American literature, and they never overlapped. (laughs) Harry Potter doesn't exist. It ended at Shakespeare. (laughs) So, Chantal, is this a love story? Uh, we posited that it was at the beginning, but I want I want your thoughts. Um, did we say a love story or did we say a Valentine's Day story? Because I think those are two very different things. I think we said Valentine's Day story, but we've restarted this episode so many times. Who's to say? Who's to say? We were having technical difficulties and here we are. Um, I mean, there's love in it, in a way. She loves Homer, I guess. She loves the idea of Homer. She loves him in a creepy way, like, no one else can have you, you know? Like that. Shouldn't have sympathy for that character, but here we are. (laughs) Like, we should hate her because she's fucking creepy, and yet... Yeah. Like, she was abused by her dad, and then she ended up being abusive. I think that her dad probably loved her, and that was the only way that she could interpret love, is to be terrible. Be like holding someone captive means love. Yeah, like her love languages got all mixed up. She did not have the love duolingo <laughs> at her fingertips. She did not have the love duolingo. <laughs> <laughs> I agree that could have been useful for her. <laughs> like, what do you make of Toby? I just want Toby to be somewhere better. Yeah. Like, I hope Toby moved to the north and started, like, a little bakery or something. But he just stayed with her. He left after she died, so I guess he would have also been really old. Yeah. Why was he working when she had been retired for, like, 20 years? I don't 
let me let me look at something. Was he older than her? I'm confused about Toby's age. Um, Toby is not ageless and eternal. Toby is a human being. Okay, he's only named once for starters. So he was young when her father died. Okay, so he was like like a young man. So say that's like 40 years ago. So he's probably like in his 50s. Yeah, I guess at the end. I hope he got to retire to a lovely northern town, maybe on a harbor or something and he can sail a boat. I don't know what he's into. We know nothing about his character except that he works. He worked and he was actually kind of weirdly loyal to Emily. Like he never shared any information with the town. Like he wasn't a gossipy. Yeah. I have two minds about that. Okay, tell me more. There's the one where it's like he's black and he's supposed to be loyal to the white people he's serving. So uh, first of all, who would believe him anyway? because the people would suck. And then secondly, the way that black servants were written by white Southerners was very specific. It's kind of like the happy slave archetype. Like the slaves in Gone with the Wind are like, oh, we're loyal to this family because they're like our family. Like we are happy to be here because we can live with them and serve them. And like, that's why they stay with Scarlet after everyone else gets freed. There's like the few main house slaves that stay on and and help her out. Which in reality, the people who stayed on, they just had no other options. They were not happy to not be free. Humans need freedom. Yeah, I think this is part of like Faulkner's view of like slow emancipation, you know? It's kind of what happened anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like this, like he he did his job and then when he didn't have to do his job anymore, he just left. That's it. Like he was just like a placeholder so that she didn't have to answer the door, you know? Right. So Chantel, yes. now that we've talked about this short story a little and uh, thoroughly analyzed it in a non-mocking way, surprisingly enough, um, on a scale of one rose to ten rows for Emily, how would you rate this? Okay, I think when I originally read it, I would give it ten roses. Right. Because I was kind of doing a surface reading. Right. Originally, I was yeah. like, this is a fun little concept. Haha, she murdered him. Whoops. Took me ten minutes to read. Woo. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm gonna have to go back to my attitude from our Poe episode where I'm like, I don't think you should murder people. Just so people know that I don't think you should murder people. Yeah. But I love reading stories about it so much. I think now, now that I know a little bit more about the context of it, yeah, I still enjoy it. I enjoy reading it, but with a more critical eye, I think I'd say like a six roses. Okay, so we'd like still be on The Bachelorette, but like not really far into it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would probably eliminate a few other people before I eliminated this story on The Bachelorette. You know what we really should have done? We should have just reviewed an episode of The Bachelorette. Yes, we're going to just completely switch format and topic of our podcast. And it's going to be a Bachelorette review podcast now. Okay. Hey, speaking of your rose rating. Yeah. Is there even a rose in this story? Let me command find this. I'm sure the rose symbolizes something. There's curtains that are faded rose in color. There is no rose. I believe the short story itself is the rose. This is false advertising. It's false advertising. This is not the Bachelorette. Emily didn't get a rose. Maybe the short story about the rose is the rose itself. It's like if you wrote The Young Man in the Sea and it didn't have a young man or a sea. It was like a young lady in a bathtub. (laughs) Bachelor Nation is not on board with this lack of rose in a rose for Emily. Wait, does it have a mention of flowers at least? 
Maybe. Let's go see that flower. Is Emily the rose? Because she's beautiful to look at, but she was thorny when you picked her up. <laughs> she she uh, lied beneath a mass of bought flowers. Like at the funeral? Yeah. Also, there were like a bunch of Confederate uniformed men at her funeral. So that's gross. Is there a rose on the Confederate uniform? Probably not. I don't know. They're really into plants. The Confederates? They really like to pretend that their movement is about plants and not about slavery. They were like, yeah, we want a farm. I'm sorry, Google. I don't want to be Googling the Confederate uniform, but you need to show it to me. Wait until you get the Facebook ads next week. Uh, no, it does not have a rose on it. Okay, interesting. So literally, there's no rose. There's no rose. I'm going to go with either... It's not a rose, is Emily? So maybe Emily's not the rose. I'm going to say maybe the rose for Emily is at her funeral. Um, It's going to trick us into thinking that it's going to be a love story. And then it's just a story about death. That's my final answer. I'm buzzing in. I think that's what I thought about it. When I read it, I thought it was going to be a love story. And then it wasn't. And that's what I liked. I like the twistos twist, you know? Twistos, please sponsor us. (laughs) Hey, Chantel, speaking of sponsors and money. Yes. Do you have an announcement for our lovely listeners? Hi, y'all. In fact, I do, Amy. We've launched some merch on Redbubble. So if you would like to get a shirt or a mug or a hoodie or a notebook that says unsighted on it, uh, you can do that now. Yep. We will link it on our Twitter. And you can also find it if you search unsighted podcast on Redbubble. Yeah. And um, if you don't want to buy our merch or you see our merch and you think we need different merch, please contact us. At our email address, where you can also send us your peer reviews. Guys, I may have told you guys last week not to send us emails, but I really love your emails. So please send us more emails at unsightedpodcast at outlook.com. That first at was not a commercial at, it was just like an AT at. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. Um, you can also contact us on Twitter at UnsightedPod. We love to hear from you, and we even love to hear when we are wrong, because <laughs> I am sure we often are. <laughs> we have a lot of thoughts, but we are also thoughts. Um, as English majors, we like to think things, but we don't necessarily know anything. Yeah, so we have a lot of, of ideas and questions about things, and we want this to be a collaborative thing. So do let us know how you feel. And if you're only bots listening to us, meet more. Don't speak their language. You don't know what you're saying. You've offended them now. I've offended the bots. We now have zero listeners. (laughs) Another way that you can support us is subscribing to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. We would also love if you would give us a five-star review on iTunes. That helps other people just like you find us. Yeah, you can just like... Go on to your iTunes account, well, your iPodcast, I guess, or whatever it's called, and then go find us, and then you just click five stars, and boom, bam, we feel loved and appreciated. <laughs> Would you like to sing us out, Amy? The jokes are on the outro. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again in two weeks. And as always, we're excited, unavailable. Let's get off this gravy train. Yes, let's hop on off that. We we got to pave road in here now so we can take the car instead of the train.